I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Portland Police Bureau. Do not interfere with the fencing. If you tamper with the fence or fail to obey officer instructions, you will be subject to uses of force to include impact munitions and riot control agents. Stay back. By the time protests kicked off in Portland, protesters in Minneapolis had burned down the 3rd Precinct and several other buildings. But as it turns out, Portland was actually the first city in the country to declare a riot over the protests after George Floyd's death. This has more to do with the way that Portland police declare riots than any objective standard of unrest. And now, many months later, Portland police still declare riots on a fairly regular basis. It seems that Portland is set on having the first and last riot of the 2020 protests. So, what happened that turned relatively normal BLM actions in Portland, which were happening in every major American city, into a movement that still draws out crowds today? I'm Robert Evans, and this is Uprising, a guide from Portland. My partners in this series are a team of local Portland journalists. Garrison Davis, Donovan Smith, B. Lake, and Elaine Kinchin. We wrote this series together, and they'll be handling most of the narration for this episode. You'll be hearing more from me, too, as we've embedded audio from several of the live streams I recorded during Cop Riots. Right now, I'm going to hand the mic off to Donovan Smith. He's reported on politics and social justice for a wide variety of local publications, and he helped produce a documentary on gentrification. Here's Donovan. After the first night of quote-unquote rioting in Portland, a state of emergency was declared and a curfew was imposed from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. with the express interest of cracking down on mass gatherings of protesters. When asked if the curfew would be enforced if someone was, for example, to go grocery shopping, the mayor's office replied, quote, The city is not interested in citing people who are going about their business, causing no harm, and uninvolved in criminal conduct, end quote. But it didn't require property destruction 
or criminal conduct for the police to start attacking and arresting protesters on Saturday, May 30th, even before the curfew. That Saturday, thousands gathered outside the Justice Center, which had become tradition in Portland. People marched around downtown and occupied the street in front of the JC, the casual name given to the Justice Center. Police came out a few times throughout the day to try and get people off the street with mixed results. This culminated with police in riot gear tear gassing the streets and city parks around the JC while bashing people in the head with truncheons. All in broad daylight, hours before the curfew was set to begin. And they are deploying extreme violence to do it. Look at this. They're beating the Throughout downtown, police and white vans targeted the largest crowd of protesters they could find, launching tear gas and stun grenades into the crowd of people. Regular city traffic was engulfed in clouds of gas on streets which had not even been closed. Houseless Portlanders sleeping in tents were woken by flashbangs, gas, and impact rounds. As the clock struck 8 p.m., after telling and gassing protesters for the better part of two hours, cops kettled protesters onto a bridge, surrounding and arresting the entire crowd for being out past curfew. A total of 48 arrests were made that night. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, upon his return from visiting his sick mother, extended the curfew for yet another day. On Sunday, May 31st, the largest crowd yet, 10,000 strong marched across the Burnside Bridge into downtown. As the marchers approached the end of the bridge, Cops were waiting on the other end, blocking their path. Once the sheer size of the crowd became apparent, the police turned tail and ran, hightailing it back to the Justice Center. The crowd followed them there, and a tense, hours-long standoff followed. Eventually, the crowd thinned out enough that police were able to tear gas and flashbang grenade protesters into dispersing. That night was one of the most terrifying evenings of the entire uprising, with officers hanging off of riot vans and grenading passersby, seemingly at random. Mayor Wheeler extended the curfew for yet another day. At a press conference announcing his extension, Wheeler doubled down on his law and order stance, this time with the help of Governor Kate Brown. I want to be very clear that there are open lines of communications between myself and the governor personally, as well as between our offices. There is coordination with the superintendent of state police, as well as the leadership of the National Guard. Um, I spoke to the governor three or four times yesterday. I did make the request on all three of those occasions for uh, support from the National Guard. The governor uh, had alternative strategies that she suggested, including deploying more state police resources. We subsequently asked for additional tools that could be used in the field that uh, was agreed to by the governor and supported. Um, Based on last night, however, I agree with what the U.S. Attorney has said, and I agree with what my colleagues in the Portland Police Bureau have just confirmed with me, which is we do need more resources. Come Monday, June 1st, there was a shift in Portland protests. Instead of meeting at the Justice Center, another crowd of thousands gathered on the east side of Portland, across from the river downtown, at an aptly named concert venue, Revolution Hall. After some speeches, the crowd began to march west toward downtown. The crowd neared the fence with a line of riot cops behind the chain link. A young black woman at the head of the march asked an officer if the crowd could march to the JC. The police said no. Eventually, the huge march headed back to Revolution Hall. 
and no tear gas was used. Now, you have to understand at this point, a lot of the crowd had just spent the last three days getting horribly tear gassed, beat up, and chased by the police. The thought of doing a protest and march without being assaulted by the cops felt like a nice change compared to the last three nights. But that all changed the next day, the day that would become infamously known as Tear Gas Tuesday. Tear Gas Tuesday sucked. Well, I had a full asthma attack. Um, I'd never been subjected to tear gas before. And so I saw a cloud of tear gas and I saw a man fall down in the cloud of tear gas and he was struggling to get up. And so I ran in and I kind of picked him up by his shirt and then grabbed him by his arm and pulled him out of there. And then I immediately had an asthma attack. Um, and my buddy picked me up by my shirt and got us both out of there. That's Chris, a volunteer protest medic and Tear Gas Tuesday was actually his second night out. The brutality he witnessed is what got him to decide to dedicate his whole summer to helping people in the streets. I saw a girl get hit in the face with shrapnel, and that was not okay. And then everybody's getting tear gassed, and it was a mess, and that was the infamous Tear Gas Tuesday. And after that, I just kind of decided that I needed to start coming out with medical supplies because... How that was handled, what people were doing to provide medicine in that moment wasn't up to a standard that I knew that I could provide. But let's take a step back. Tear Gas Tuesday was a noteworthy shift for Portland protests for a multitude of reasons. It was the first day since riot night with no curfew, with city officials even publicly admitting to the curfew being ineffective now. And it was the first day that the protests noticeably began to splinter. Just like Monday, the day before, thousands marched from Revolution Hall toward the fence, which at this point surrounded several city blocks, including the Justice Center, the Federal Courthouse, and Chapman and Lounsdale, the two city parks which faced those buildings. Only this time, just half the crowd turned back to Rev Hall, with the other half set on chanting at the police behind the chain link fence. The Portland police issued repeated warnings over loudspeakers that protesters were not to touch the fence under threat of riot munitions. As might be predicted, the sanctity of PPB's sacred fence became an immediate source of ridicule, even as police followed through on their threats. And as members of the crowd dared to touch the fence, the PPB once again deployed an outrageous amount of tear gas. And it wasn't even the amount of tear gas that was fired off that night, but how they fired it. Several times, police rushed in multiple directions, all while firing off more tear gas, creating a massive cage of poison. Police are boxing the crowd in on several sides and deploying munitions into the crowd. Flashbangs and gas. See the anti-fascist flag here. Lots of gas. Two other things stick out from Tear Gas Tuesday. The first of which was just how many motorists driving through downtown were tear gassed by Portland police. They are shooting them down on us from everywhere, from the fucking rooftops. Police firing on all sides, pumping gas into traffic, pumping gas into the crowds, shooting gas. Look, there's fucking tear gas. There's fucking tear gas in the middle of traffic that was just fired from someone up on a rooftop into the middle of traffic. Multiple times, people who are blinded by gas while driving panic and lost control of their vehicles nearly hit people as they drove into crowds. 
Protesters with water bottles and medical supplies render aid to drivers who had crashed into the curb. So here we have, look how many cars there are here. All of these people are about to get tear gassed by the Portland Police Bureau. Oh boy, they're just started arcing them down at us from God knows where, maybe on the fucking roof. They're just coming down from the sky. People trying to traffic cone them trying to kick them away, trying to stop them from gassing traffic. The other thing that sticks out is the crowd's resilience was growing. Protesters started adopting tactics seen in the Hong Kong uprising, like placing traffic cones over tear gas canisters and pouring water through the top of the cone to get the burning canister out. We see people actually very effectively deploying Hong Kong tactics here to stop these tear gas grenades from gassing both protesters and from gassing vehicles. A chant that became popular in the weeks to come was walk, don't run, reminding people in times of panic, often the safest way out is just by walking calmly. People yelling, more experienced organizers are walking calmly through the crowd, putting hands on people and saying, do not run, do not run. Because the thing that hurts people in situations like this is panic. It's scary, but it probably won't seriously harm you if you don't panic. And the police aren't going to take any steps to try to avoid a stampede. So the only way to avoid a stampede is, again, for the crowd to take care of itself. We have seen people get so much better at reforming the crowd after being gassed. That started to really improve on Sunday night. And look, most of the people are still here, still organized, still marching, still many thousands of people. This is the first time we've seen the best job of the crowd staying together and really showing commitment and endurance uh, in the face of police brutality. So this has been a very important and a very Im impressive night from the activists and the citizens of Portland, Oregon. Chris, who acquired a gas mask the very next day, sums up his feelings about tear gas Tuesday like this. It was such an odd response to see the police respond to a protest about um, police violence and brutality with just police violence and brutality. We crooked. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After Tear Gas Tuesday, things in Portland started to fall into a pattern. During the day, there'd be massive peaceful marches starting from Revolution Hall led by a new group called Rose City Justice. At night, about a thousand protesters would gather at the sacred fence, which now only surrounded the Justice Center, and the adjacent federal buildings to inevitably get tear gas and attacked by police for, quote, tapering with the fence. Photojournalist and photographer Mariah says some of her favorite moments of the protests were at the massive marches organized by Rose City Justice in early June. I would say, like, in the early days, um, really is some stuff that really uh, is memorable to me, especially with with a lot of my um, favorite photos from this whole um, um, movement. Um, has come from the earlier days. Like there was a moment, I want to say it was the Burnside Bridge when everyone was like laying down for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And um, I got some good pictures of that. And it was just really great to capture. Um, it seems like the moment when Damian Lillard came out, you know, everyone like, you know, had like this love moment in this. And I got it. And at the moment, actually, when he came out, I didn't even know he was um, out there. And so I checked my photos later and I was like, oh, snap. Um, got him and stuff. Activist and live streamer Max Smith attended both the larger daytime protests on the east side and the night protests at the JC. Here, he explains how he became a popular speaker at the Portland protests and the interesting effect of having both the daytime march and a nighttime action on the public. I want to say it was the second or the third that I actually got out in the streets um, doing the work with the security stuff and helping out with the the larger marches on the east side, the uh, Revolution Hall things and all that. So I was kind of doing, uh, playing a couple of roles over there with helping with the Guardian folks and doing some, you know, a political education at the same time. And it's, it kind of just came natural. I just start talking to people and people start listening to what I'm saying. And um, on the night of the 5th, I got arrested downtown at the JC. Um or near the, around the area of the JC, at least. Um, I, I got arrested down there. And so that weekend, I ended up giving a speech at Irving Park. 
And that's kind of where things started. It ended up being like streamed on the news locally. So that's where things kind of started changing for me at that point. And can you talk to me about the night you were arrested? It's like, I'm yeah. interested in kind of as much detail as you're, as you're interested in going in. Yeah, that's fine. My, you know, it was just a basic arrest. Um, I was actually out there with a, a couple of people. We had been going down a couple nights to see what was going on at the Justice Center. Because, you know, I had been, you know, if you're just watching the news, all you see is, you know, it, it, it looks like one b- a big march, right? Like it's one huge march. It starts in the daytime. And all of a sudden it descends into in madness at night. But uh, quickly I realized that there's there's multiple things that are going on if you leave your house, you know, <laughs> you get off the TV. There's a lot that's going on in the streets. So I started, you know, going out to see different things. And we were down at the uh, JC and things got really gassy. It was one of the nights. So again, it was the first, like, you know, a, a few days of gassing. And, um, I had been down there before and this time I brought a couple different people that were like, you know, I'm trying to see it, but I'm scared. And I was like, just come with me. I'll show you what's going on. It's not, you know, it's not that big of a deal, but we ended up um, catching up with some other uh, people uh, down there and kind of had like a little group and we were, and there were a lot of, of like uh, teenagers uh, down there. And so we were actually making sure a lot of people got out because there were cops everywhere, like circling and pulling people over and stopping people and arresting them. And so we were like kind of helping folks navigate their way out and then um, as it got late, there were a bunch of people that were suffering from tear gas. And so myself and a medic, and I have like a first aid, a training, a basic stuff. And so the, uh, those first nights I was out there with like, you know, milk or the baking soda and water solutions and whatever else, just helping folks out. And so we were following the groans of people, you know, coughing and, and being victims of tear gas. And the cops just rolled up with like four cars and eight officers hopped out and I got snatched up. And it's got snatched up. I got, I got grabbed by the hair, got yanked to the ground, uh, bruised my elbow. You know, I had a crick in my neck for a few days, but they arrested me. They uh, drove me around in a squad car for like 15, 20 minutes. They picked up some other guy. Um, you know, they accused him of drawing on a drawing on a window with a Sharpie or something. And he's like, what? And they were like, you know, they were trying to charge him with a felony. All of our charges got dropped. No one got charged with anything. I, I got charged with obstructing the police. He got charged with something else. As Mac was inside the police car, he was also able to get a sneak peek of how the police were targeting people for arrest behind the scenes. I thought it was crazy because they had this like thing in their car, like this, like a, a heads up display, like a HUD. And it, 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 uh, it had like, it had an aerial view of this, of the downtown grid. And it had like, it was able to track people. And I thought that was, it was like a call of duty display. Like when you're like using like, you know, the helicopter or whatever, it was like that. And like, you could see like the people and they were like, I represented like as lights kind of, there was like a light on them. It was like a, it was like a, a black and white display and you could see the things that are moving. But then like with a people, it, it basically lit them up with like lights and circles. It would a, a, a circle us um, if we were in groups. And when the groups got small enough, they would like turn green and the cops would just go and arrest people. The group of protesters gathered at the fence were quick to make a distinction between, quote, peaceful protests and nonviolent protests. While the massive Rose City justice marches remained peaceful, 
The crowds at the JC would engage in nonviolent actions such as shaking, tearing down, and cutting apart the chain link fence. Most of what people did at the JC was just standing in the street and parks while chanting demands and slogans. But it didn't require people to tamper with the fence or throw half-drunk water bottles for the police to respond with force, as this protester can attest. I was downtown and it was back at the original fence. And, I, you know, there was probably, I probably estimate like 500 people there. And everyone was really spread out. And um, there was no police on the ground. It was raining that night and they had uh, their floodlights like pointed at us. Um, and one shot got fired from one of the um, like the little balcony areas, the one that's farther to the right. And it hit me in the leg. It was just one shot and it hit me um, at the like the very top of my left thigh And I was just standing there with a group of friends like I had there was a beach ball in the crowd that night and it said, don't gas me, bro. And I picked it up and I started riding on it and one shot got fired and it hit me in the leg. And that was what I would consider to be at least like protest related. My first encounter with the Portland Police Bureau, no one was doing anything. No one was, you know, pushing on the fence or knocking on it. And they just fired a shot into the crowd and it hit me. We crooked. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. 
His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next, you're going to hear from Garrison Davis. He was just 17 when Portland's BLM protests started, and for weeks he was out virtually every night, filming some of the most intense police violence and posting some of the most viral videos of the entire uprising. Here's Garrison. Every night, the fence at the Justice Center seemed to grow larger. The city doubled up some sections of the chain link and stacked pieces of fence on top of one another. Eventually, concrete barriers were added to make it harder to knock over the fence. The divides between protesters began to widen as well. Some of the more radical leftist BLM activists in Portland criticized Rose City Justice and their insistence on, quote, peaceful protest over direct action that might damage police property. Gregory McKelvey, vice chair of Oregon Dems Black Caucus and former organizer, pushed back on some of that criticism. Gregory was also organizing on a new front now. As protests gained steam, he was in the home stretch of leading a grassroots-style campaign for political newcomer Sarah Ionarone to take down incumbent mayor Ted Wheeler. Many Portlanders felt Wheeler had failed on his promise to deliver fundamental change on issues of housing and police reform. Instead, Wheeler became a symbol of big money in politics. More of the same. Gregory's candidate, Ayanna Rohn, ran to the left of Wheeler, dubbing herself an, quote, everyday anti-fascist. So, you know, uh, we had a situation where tens of thousands of people were marching every day. And if you're at those events, they're just beautiful. And yeah, they're way more liberal. They're way more moderate. Um, but those people are being marched along, pun intended, towards a more radical place. And, you know, Malcolm X said more eloquently than me that basically, um, you know, everything you know, there was a point where you didn't. Um, and so these people are on their journey just as everybody else. And just because they're not anarchists yet does not make them agents of the state. Um, and I really think that those protests are what effectively got us the, um, uh, the 20 million defunded from the police. I mean, we had a moment where there were mass protests and Damian Lillard was at the front of a protest um, that was encapturing the entire city. Now, if you're wondering, yes, he is talking about that Damian Lillard, five-time NBA All-Star and Portland Trailblazer superstar point guard Damian Lillard. Yeah, he was out there too. Yeah, they weren't burning stuff down. Um, and also some of their rhetoric was not you know, as far left as maybe I would like, or and, and certainly that some people at the Justice Center would like. But I actually do think those protests were more effective, and they certainly had far more support from the broad public. And we were getting people at these protests who had never protested before. Like, I don't think the Justice Center protests should have stopped, and I don't think that they're ineffective per se, um, but I think they're certainly much more effective if in tandem there's also the other protests going on. So if I'm at home watching, um, like, channel 268 or 12, um, which I had to watch a lot for my job, um, they're not making a difference between which protesters are which protesters. They're just saying, 
protesters marched and Damian Lillard joined them. Later in the night, protesters were gassed and beaten, right? That, that um, way of explaining things is really helpful for all the protesters because um, they see that protest with Damian Lillard and they're like, oh, I support this. And then they see what they think is the same people getting gassed that night. And they're like, no, 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 no. And that helps us move the conversation towards defunding. Once those massive protests go away and we only have protests that Damian Lillard is never going to be seen at, now, uh, now they have no support from the broad public. Early June is also when most of Portland's 2020 police reforms were achieved, under large pressure both locally and from the nationwide BLM movement. The Portland Public Schools superintendent decided to end the school resource officer program, opting instead for an increased spending on social workers, counselors, and culturally specific mentors for students. Also, a historically racist Portland police unit was also disbanded. Here's more on that from Gregory. We got rid of some of the specialty units, including the gang enforcement unit, or formerly known as the gang enforcement unit, which kept a list of mostly black individuals that they thought were gang members. Um, and it really was a circle of our injustice carceral system um, and was really uh, abhorrent and racist. And they switched their name to the gun violence reduction team in a branding effort, but still had the same mandate. Um, we got rid of that specialty unit. We defunded 20 something million dollars from the police, which um, sounds like a lot, but we were defunding from a lot of different bureaus because of the pandemic and the budget shortfall in general. Alongside those small reforms in early June, Portland also saw some negative change on the road to police accountability. The officers responding to protests were told they were allowed to cover both their name tag and badge number. Amid fears, officers would be, quote, doxxed. Lawyer Alan Kessler explains this in greater detail. So, um... There's a directive that says that the police shall display their name uh, on their uniform uh, unless they get special dispensation from their, their commander to not do it. Um, and the police are supposed to give you a business card if you ask. They're supposed to identify themselves and they're supposed to give a business card which has their name and badge number on it. Right? Yeah. It's not supposed to be a secret police force. And the directives are, you know, there are several directives that are kind of about that uh, interaction with the public. It turns out that uh, very early in the, in the protests, there was a, an email that was sent out that told police that it's okay for them to cover their badge and then replace it with their, it's called their personnel number or PERNR, um, spelled either P-R-N-R or P-E-R-N-R. Uh, and it's a it's a weird choice. Like the only the only thing it was used for before that was payroll. It's in their um, accounting system. Oh, and also historically, it's been used in the on some internal investigations of police officers alike in internal review reports. Um, but the reason they picked it, like uh, I kind of guessed this at the time, but it was too silly to be true. Was there is a there aren't a ton of things that are exempt uh, from the public records law in Oregon, uh, but one thing that is exempt is uh, numbers on an ID badge. Um, so somebody thought this through, somebody who is really familiar with the public records law thought this through and said, okay, if we use the number from the ID badge as the cop's badge number, then if anybody asks for the list, we'll say, no, those are secret numbers that are 
you know, we have to keep them secret for the, for the cops protection, which is nuts because they're wearing it out in public on their chest. Uh, but yeah, but uh, there's like no way to trace it back. Yeah. In, in a digital format. No way for us to, for sure. That's right. Yeah. I assume they have some way. Yeah. The early marches had been absolutely enormous, but almost everyone there fell into the simple category of protester. There were some very overworked medics, but Portland lacked the sheer variety of specialties among activists that allowed Hong Kong's protest movement to persist for so long. That changed over the first few weeks of the uprising, as people who never thought of themselves as particularly radical fell into new roles. There were no longer just street medics, but shield-bearing frontliners, people armed with traffic cones and water to douse tear gas, other activists provided food and equipment, and a handful of Portlanders began learning the trade of the conflict journalist. While Portland's professional press got used to packing body armor alongside their camera and notebook. As in any mass movement, there was bound to be disagreements and infighting. People had differing opinions on everything from looting to dumpster fires to how much fence-shaking was acceptable, and the usefulness of large marches that stayed completely peaceful. Despite those differences, people did keep coming out, day after day, night after night, for the entire first half of June. Some of those people are still coming out even now. Yeah, I was six, uh kind of me personally expecting just for people just to maybe be protesting a week to, you know, not mu not much. And then, you know, quote unquote, back to normal life. But, you know, yeah. And then it's been now five months um, at it. So, yeah. And I kept going with because my I just felt really strongly to keep going. And especially with um, what I was doing um, as for uh, photographing at all. I just had this passion that I was like, OK, I got to keep going. So, yeah, I've I haven't stopped. <laughs> As June wore on, the number of people out at nightly demonstrations began to drop. Crowds of thousands became crowds of hundreds. A certain mania took over the increasingly hardened core of the Portland BLM movement, who seems to feel the need to confront police every single night without pause. It exhausted many protesters and journalists. Koska describes the feeling well. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was, it was every night, and it was, it was nonstop, and I remember once... Um, when they when they when they had the double fences up in front of the justice center, I remember when some people walking away from it, and they were telling me that the protest was canceled. And I said, "There's no such thing as as canceling this." I was like, "This to me, I was I even said it on one of my videos, and it probably sounds kind of cheesy, but I was like, this feels like the energy for this rebellion is coming from some uh, some." unknown place like like to i said it felt almost supernatural because it was pushing people beyond their human limits like for me i'm not the kind of person that will you know interrupt my sleep schedule for almost anything but i didn't really sleep or eat or drink as you're supposed to for almost two months because i was so wrapped up in yeah in what was happening and then i didn't know that for a while, I didn't know that other cities were still protesting for a long time because I, you know, didn't even have time to check the news because it would take me, you know, since I'm older, <laughs> it takes me longer to recover from that. So the whole, you know, I would be recovering the whole time not protesting. While I was not protesting, I'd be recovering from protesting. That's pretty much all I did for almost two months. 
Looking back on the early days of the uprising, you can see all the little things that happened in order to transform this into more than just a regular protest. Every day, the brutality from the previous night rekindled people's desire for change. Repeated tear gassings forced the crowd to get good at reforming after being dispersed. As the days turned into weeks, protesters started mirroring Hong Kong tactics more and more. Established activist groups provided support for new activists with new ideas. On June 17th, inspired by Seattle's Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, Portland protesters announced plans for an autonomous zone of their own. This AZ was limited to a single city block in front of Mayor Ted Wheeler's luxury condo, where protesters set up tents, ate pizza, and played dance music late into the night. The Portland police ousted the occupation early the following morning, but protesters were clearly learning valuable lessons. Drinks, pizza, medical support, and a speaker system arrived within the first hour of the occupation. Barricades went up soon after, followed by the arrival of the Autonomous Zone's very own porta potty. By the time the police swept through in the early morning, a surprising amount of infrastructure had been set down in a very short amount of time. That action ultimately failed. But as protests continued through the city, infrastructure would spring up again and again. Throughout the first half of June, a framework was put in place that would transform Portland's Black Lives Matter protests into a movement that could hold on and dig in for more than half a year. Uh. Word to grand pops who couldn't fathom the Obamases. I don't hate America, just the man she keeps her promises. Twenty teens looking like the 60s, it's crazy. A nationwide deja vu, what my people supposed to do? Go to schools named after the Klan founder. Word around town is y'all don't see why we frowning. Native American students forced to learn about Winnow Para Sarah. How is that fair, bruh? Some heroes unsung and some monsters get monuments built for them. But ain't be all a little bit of monster, we crooked. Man, your heroes are worthless And man can show try, but only God gives purpose You crooked I am the ferryman In the shadows of the afterlife The ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. 
I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.